to forging her vindictives, dreaming about a premiership cup. We love our clubs, but they never win. Two flags in 100 years. That shit house, if you think we'll be insightful, clever or just well researched. To say that's not the case, we'll just go out and wing it. We are two guys, one cup. Hello and welcome to Two Guys, One Cup Summer Edition. My name is Charlie Clawson and this series is my club. And this week, my guest is Charlie Pickering. You know him as the host of The Weekly. I know him as my former housemate and a mad keen Bombers supporter. Uh, Charlie is a fantastic guest. It took us a long time to tee up this interview. Um, Our schedules kept changing and then our respective children both made us sick at different times. But we finally got there and I think it was worth the wait. Uh, Charlie has strong opinions in life, but particularly about uh, the Essendon football team. Um, we get into uh, we get into it straight away. Um, the drug saga, uh, James Heard, uh, what Charlie feels the club's obligation to its members and its supporters are. I think I only ask about four questions in the entire interview because Charlie really takes the ball and runs with it, if you pardon the pun. Um, I thought this was a fascinating chat. So ladies and gentlemen, here is Charlie Pickering. Charlie, long time in the planning and the making, but we finally coordinated our schedules. <laughs> I think I first messaged you at the end of last year. And, that is uh, right. And we are in March 2021, finally talking about the Bombers. Um, and, and so excited to be here. Uh, we're recording this at a time when Essendon just went down by seven points to Geelong in the first uh, match of the preseason. And they kicked, I think, uh, 187 points, I think, by the end of it. Like, the kicking was... Uh, but it was one of those... It's a, it was a classic preseason match for an Essendon supporter in these times, which is... Um, high level incompetence, but just enough promise to give some hope that will be destroyed around the mid-season point this year. That's what that's what I'm predicting. Well, that's what I'm fascinated to talk to you about because, like, here's my impression of, of Essendon supporters and where Essendon is at at the moment. You've seen the movie Trading Places. <laughs> yes. Dan Aykroyd, super rich. Uh, privileged, mm-hmm. uh, two billionaires decide to to make a bet to see if they can take everything away from him to see if he will turn to a life of crime. He uh, He's stripped down, then he realises that he needs to build himself up with a stronger moral core. Now, I feel like Essendon are at the halfway point of trading places where you guys <laughs> have never <laughs> known adversity like this. Like it, it, My reading of it, like through the, the drug saga and then, you know, the bounce back seemed to be really quick and you got all these great draft picks in, John Worsfold, but it didn't kind of click. And you can sort of sense this impatience with Bomber supporters to be like, hang on, we are not used to mediocrity. We're not used to this. Like, what's your take on that? All right, there is a cultural thing with Essendon and, and I'm going to try, no one else you speak to will trace it back to this, right? Okay. But I'm... I was like reliably informed around 1998. Like someone was talking, I was, we were talking about how some clubs have money and others don't. And someone said to me, well, you know that Essendon still has war bonds from World War II. <laughs> and it was like, and that was what was said to me. And it was like, that's a, like they, it's like they never sold them off and they've still got this asset and it's just like worth an extraordinary amount. Now, I don't even know how war bonds work, but to me, that is the mental picture of Essendon that we've never lacked resources. You know, in my yeah. and particularly in my lifetime, I went to, I watched the '83 Grand Final on TV, and I, which was appallingly bad against Hawthorne. But I went to '84 
and 85. And that was, that was the, the formative moment of my life watching football was watching Essendon be just absolutely awesome at playing football, like mm. unstoppably good. And then again, I went to every match of the 2000 season except the one match they lost to uh, Footscray. So I literally didn't go to a, like watch them lose that season. And so I've known the dominance of this club and I've known them to always bounce back and be in contention. And then a string of appalling decisions have led to the point where I, we definitely lack confidence as a club. Supporters, we lack confidence in the club. Mm. And that is, that is strange for us, but it's entirely justified. Like, mm. there should be consequences. You know, you're a St Kilda supporter. There had to be consequences. For a long time, it was like the players could do whatever they wanted, you know, and the club never told them to pull their heads in. And that's why they never were in proper contention. You know, like there are consequences for cultural issues at a club. I don't know what St Kilda has done. I don't know how many mirrors they've broken or how many gypsies they've run over uh, in their time. But like the curse is upon us. I mean, Essendon, it's fascinating. I, I liken it to what Carlton went through at the end of, you know, the 90s, start of 2000s, when they were sanctioned for basically cheating, you know, and similar, you know, huge Victorian club are suddenly put on the back foot where their draft picks are compromised. Financially, they've taken a massive hit. And there is just this kind of like, you know, dark cloud, this question mark put over their existing premierships. Now, Carlton, it's 21 years later and Carlton is still, you know, trying to find their feet. I'm not saying that Essendon's rebuild will take as long, but I do sort of see a lot of similarities. Do you agree? Yeah, oh, absolutely. But I think, do you know what? Like, as not an Essendon supporter, as a person that is a fan of just justice... Well, fair enough. Like, Carlton cheated. It should be hard for you to come back and win a grand final after doing that. Essendon, like, I, I, I don't like getting into... Well, I mean, we had some salary cap stuff as well. We had, like, salary mm. cap issues and we had um, the peptide scandal. Yeah, And it's like, yeah, I, there sh it should be hard. It shouldn't be easy. The, the whole reason you have a draft is to try and make the the competition more fair. The, the whole mm. reason you have punishments for breaching salary cap is to try and make the competition fair. And I and it's, yeah, fair enough that it's hard. But I think that in the mix there, there are some bad decisions that were made that um, at both clubs, I would say, that made the comeback harder. You know, if they'd made every decision well along the way since their disgrace, they probably would have been back in contention sooner. But on the, on the surface... On the surface, it didn't seem like you'd made bad decisions. I mean, Will and I in the regular uh, Two Guys, One Cup, I remember were talking about, oh, how smart Essendon had been in, you know, the way they sort of took their punishment. They had that year where most of the players were kind of not allowed to play. And then you seemed to draft really well. You brought in an established, experienced premiership coach. And on the surface, it all it looked like you were handling it perfectly. You know, you'd really gotten through that period, that bumpy period. But I wonder if there's some psychological scarring that has occurred, like if there was something that got into the player's psyche or the board's psyche that meant you just could not gel. Well, yeah, I mean, do you know what you don't know? You actually don't know what happens to a player who doesn't play for a year. Like that, like if you are a guitarist and you don't play guitar for a year, do you ever get back to as good as you were? 
If you're and, and if you're a, a footballer and you don't play for a year, and we all know how much the game can change in twelve mm. months, and you don't play, you've missed a step. You know there are very few players that could take a year off and come back and be as good as they were ever again. Well, like that's a that's a that's a really unlikely. Was there thing. ever a point, you know, at the sort of height of the the peptide scandal where you? Had any doubts about supporting the club where you felt like, you know, you couldn't endorse them with your membership? I, I, yeah, well, I, yeah, I'd, I'd stop paying my membership. Right. Did, you, uh, did you publicly put it in the microwave like people tend to do <laughs> after a big loss? You know, there's always people uploading social media um, videos of them microwaving their membership card. Yeah, but do you know what? The, you're still a paid up member regardless of what you do to the card. Like, <laughs> you know, like you still... <laughs> You got to, you know, if it's it's far less exciting to watch someone cancel the direct debit payment. It's very laborious to do that <laughs> online, and there's there's a number of emails involved. It's 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 not it's too long for TikTok, but um, yeah. But no, I, I, but for me, it wasn't. I was I wasn't there to publicly punish my club. I just felt that I it was wrong for me to continue to financially support a club that, to be honest, at the time just didn't get it. Like just didn't do it. it the whole thing could have been handled better, and we should get into like. I, can I just park this idea? I'd like to talk about James Hurd in a massive way, and this is probably a good way to get into it. Um, so as far as disillusionment goes, that was part of my disillusionment with sport itself. And I'll, I'll explain that. I had two sporting heroes throughout my late teenage years and early 20s. I had two sporting heroes, and they were James Hurd and Lance Armstrong. Right, and in, in the space of about eighteen months, they were both taken away from me, and they genuinely changed my relationship to sport. Like, because people I looked up to, people who I had followed as incredible champions, and both of them were about as good at doing the thing as anyone has ever been. You know, Lance Armstrong, technically, I think, yeah. is about the probably the third or fourth greatest cyclist of all time. But in my lifetime, definitely the greatest. The greatest at riding the Tour de France, absolutely. Um, and James Hurd was as good a player as there was at the time or probably ever. And also, and the, the, the thing that hurt the most is, and what I liked about him the most, he was, I reckon, the cleanest player going around at the time. Like, I, you know, I never saw him throw an elbow. I never, yeah. you know, he wasn't an eye gouger. He wasn't a squirrel gripper. He was a guy that would go into a pack and come up with the ball every time because just somehow he was better at it. And to have the cleanest player preside over the dirtiest scandal was a very hard thing to swallow. I firmly believe that his fall from grace is one of the most compelling Australian, if not international, sports stories ever. You could not have a, a, a figure who is more beloved or revered or uh, had won as many mm. accolades as James Hurd. And every club has this romantic idea of bringing back, you know, their, their favourite son to coach the club, you know. And often it doesn't work out, mm. Michael Voss, you know. Um, but James Hurd seemed to have the acumen for coaching, you know, and he seemed to have the players. And then this thing happens. And there has never been as dramatic a fall from grace as what happened to James Hurd. And I just think it is astounding that, that guy, where his reputation was prior to this to where it is now, it's just, I, I can't think of a, of a bigger 180 turnaround. Yeah, but I think there's an, there's an added element to it that I don't think is discussed. And to be honest, I've wanted to make a documentary about it for a long time, but I don't think you can actually make it without James Hurd. And I don't think 
James Heard is ready to go near a microphone to talk about no. it for a very long time. But that's the when that's when you can get Scott Dooley in for the reenactment because I'm still pushing my idea. That's right. I've been pitching this telly movie, Charlie. Hey, Scott. B- bombs away, the Scott, peptide leave your, hair, leave your hair long for three that's months. Right. I need you. Just let your hair grow out a bit. Um, but I, there is an added element to, to this story that I don't, that actually takes it into a mythical status for mm. me. It actually becomes like a Greek myth. And it is that his undoing was his greatest strength. And that was his determination to win. And it served him as a player. Like you have a look at, I remember reading articles in The Age, which is like the Fairfax paper of Melbourne, for those that don't know it, but um, the broadsheet newspaper of Melbourne, when in the 2000 season, I remember just reading articles which were just about how far he would run in a game mm. and they it was before they had gps tracking of players but they'd map it out and they'd go in one play and they would have diagrams of how far he ran and ended up kicking a goal at the end of it and it was it was extraordinary how hard he was running how much ground he was covering he was involved in the back line the center and the forward line he could go wherever he wanted and do everything he would always come up with the ball he famously had his fucking head oh, caved in. Sorry, I don't know if you meant to edit this, but no, that's fine. The, sh- the show is called Two Guys, One Cup, Charlie. I don't think you yeah. have to worry about <laughs> yeah, content. <sorry. laughs> so that what? So yeah, that, I mean that incident. He had his head caved in because he was running for a ball to take a mark. Had someone running against him, and he dived into the guy's knees. Because he wanted to take that, and his he his face was made up of plates. He he like physically would never be the same again. Like his face changed shape. Like it's it's one of the most grotesque um, injuries ever seen in football. All a product of the fact that his desire to win was almost unmatched. You know, in football, he becomes a coach. He has a a member of his medical team that he shouldn't have trusted but does, tells him there's a thing that isn't against the rules, it's not listed as a thing you can't do, but can help the players recover, and he has this desire to win. Now, he it was literally not on a list of banned things you weren't allowed to do. Any, he should have thought, oh, hang on, it's definitely not okay to just be injecting players. Like, that. Oh, that's never happened before, Alarm bells should be going off, right? Like, well, I think I think one of the, the thing that is concerning because I, you know, was quite sympathetic towards him and even the players who were like, "Well, look, you know, we were just doing what the doctors said," but the fact that it was off the books, the fact that they were going to kind of yeah. like injecting houses, that is where red flags should have come up. Yeah, Otherwise, that, they make sh- it transparent. That that, that was just, if it was just if everyone had a booking on the Essendon Google Meets, um, <laughs> you know, schedule, like then fine, yeah. you know, like, and it was the in-club doctor doing it. Yeah. So anyway, that definitely had the stink on it. But what I'm saying is like he made a terrible decision, which was the that his desire to win led him to that decision. But the worst decision he made was when it all came out, if he had fronted the press and said, they were not on the banned substance list, but it was a big mistake. We shouldn't have done it. I throw myself on the mercy of the AFL and I take the punishment and I stand down as coach until this is investigated and resolved. He still would have been seen as a hard done by hero. He would have been a lot more beloved and he would have ridden out the controversy. I think he would have come back as a coach. I genuinely think that would have happened. 
But his desire to win meant that he hired a QC, meant that he was taking transcripts of every conversation that he was having on the phone, meant that he was going to go to court, he was going to fight it, dragged it on, and he never had that moment where he could just say, I've done the wrong thing and I am sorry. And that is, in my mind, what destroyed him. Mm. And that, to me, is entirely a product of his desire to win. And, 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 it, and it's what made him a champion footballer and made him, you know, one of, I think one of the saddest figures of recent sporting times, in, you know, if not worldwide, then definitely in Australia. And as a fan of the club, that was too much to bear. And that's why I didn't pay my membership for a few years. And it was hard for me. I didn't go to games. I lost interest in football as a result of it. And that was, you know, football has been a part of my life since I was born. And I, it was my favourite thing to do. It was the thing that my father and I did when I was young that was an absolute, um, it was the way we bonded, as, as a lot of men do when you're watching something else. So the conversation is easier, you know. Um, and so going to the football with my dad and his friends as they would get loaded um, at the football um, was just one of my favourite things as a kid. And it was, I, I think I still grieve what I lost through that scandal. Because it was all about uh, me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really, those, those childhood memories, like a lot of people that I've spoken to doing this show, you know, talk about how um, formative those early memories of going to the football with your family or your mum or your dad were. So who was your favourite player as a kid in the 80s? Was it sort of like a Vanderhaar? Yeah, it was or Paul Vanderhaar. Paul, Paul Vanderhaar, yeah, 100%. Flying Dutchman. And I used to like draw pictures of him at school. Like, you know, like, if, you know, in cars, if you had to draw anything, I was always drawing Paul Vanderhaar taking a mark. Paul Salmon as well. I, I deeply loved Paul Salmon. I always, I, I played full forward as a kid, you know, because of my height. Did you? And, um, <laughs> but, um, Very short I, team. Yeah. No, but it's, yeah, I, I was less short when I was young. I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, the, the one, like, the one thing I had was, and, and it was the same with cricket, I could catch anything. So I right. was actually a good forward because I would always take the mark. Like just I, I was just I could catch anything at any time. That was my one great sporting skill. I believe the technical term, Charlie, is you're an undersized key position player. That's exactly right. I was, but yeah. you know, Lee Matthews wasn't that tall, and he was a, a devastating forward. And Kevin Bartlett wasn't that tall, and and other yeah. Yeah, players the, from a Lee very Matthews. long time ago. <laughs> you're, you're the Lee Matthews of junior football. We'll just put that in a quote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe more. Maybe more to use um, Essendon '85 parlance. Maybe more a Daisy Williams sort of dangerous short forward, or a, a, a Darren Buick, more a Darren Buick type figure. But um, so I'm I'm always fascinated by you know uh, culture is always a, a term that comes up a lot. Like what is the identity of a club? You know, Will and I often talk about you know Collingwood. It's always backs against the wall. Whenever Collingwood has you know uh, the media and 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 everyone going against them, that's when they'll come out and win against the odds. I mean. If you take that as a as a kind of barometer, then twenty twenty one they should win the flag. But <laughs> the culture of Essendon, the way I read it, because as a, a guy growing up barracking for the Saints in the eighties, I felt harassed and bullied by Carlton supporters, Hawthorne supporters, and Essendon supporters because you were the big boys, the big Victorian teams. But to me, Essendon were the most interesting of those giant clubs because you seemed to have this combination of like you weren't the silver tails like 
you know, Hawthorne or Carlton, you had a bit of that Western suburbs grit, but also with the kind of dominance and, you know, multiple premierships. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, we, it's because we were just, um, I'm, I was trying to be glib about it, but I won't. Um, I think you're absolutely right that to be out at Essendon and Windy Hill, even, like I, I grew up, I grew up in Brighton, but I was going out to Windy Hill, and I culturally was identifying with, with Windy <laughs> Hill. You know, like, um, but so it wasn't. It was by no means, um, yeah, a suburb best known for an airport. Like it's just funny. Like, um, it was. It, there was no sense of privilege at that at that side of town. It was definitely working class. Um, but there is a thing about success that um, becomes part of a culture as well. And those two things mm. can absolutely go together when everyone takes it seriously. But, uh, you know, I, I feel like Essendon, I feel like they were the most professional club the earliest, if that, if that right. makes sense. I think they treated it more like a business than other clubs earlier. And, and, and I think that really showed through 2000. It felt like they were doing, they were running it professionally in a way that other clubs weren't. I th- you know, and I think that, I think other clubs kind of developed and, and, and they've, they've led a bit. Maybe that's, you know, why peptides seemed an option. It was just the vanguard of professional <laughs> development. Um, but, I, you know, so I think there was, there was an element of that. But, yeah, beyond that, it, it's funny, and this may be why recent times have been so hard, I think part of the culture was success. And and the yeah. expectation of success, that's a dangerous thing to have in your cultural makeup. If that success goes away, then your identity mm. is is pretty thin at that point. It's funny, you talk about St Kilda. I always had great affection for St Kilda because I lived close to Moorabbin and I was obsessed with football. So I would go, if, if there was a game on at Moorabbin, I would go. It didn't matter who it was playing. So it could be like Geelong St Kilda and I'd be I'd go because I just loved footy. And so I always just had a great sense of um, oh, camaraderie for St Kilda supporters, particularly throughout that period that they couldn't win a game. Like they just, that was, that was bad times. And so the last cage, 50 years, is that yeah, what you're talking no, but, about? <laughs> no, nah, but you were properly wooden spooning it in like 85, if I recall yeah, 80, correctly. That's like totally. you were, you were yeah. wooden spooning hard, you know. Yeah, um, seven. I think we won seven wooden spoons in the 80s. Yeah, you were the Lance Armstrong of wooden spoons. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, I, I I had some great times out there at the Cage. It was and that the sound of people beating on that aluminium shit box of a stadium was was pretty. Spe- that was a special thing. You know, I, I never had any affectionate memories associated with Victoria Park, which to me felt um, regressive. Just yeah, re- regressive on almost a like um. It felt like you know in the chart of um, uh, you know the chart of evolution of ape to Cro-Magnon to Homo yeah. sapiens. It felt just one step back on that. It just always felt one okay. step back on that chart. Congratulations too on uh, ticking off the two guys one cup bingo, where every guest has told me that uh, they have a lot of affection for St Kilda because <laughs> as I've come to learn during this show, St Kilda is a threat to no one. No one fears St Kilda. No one has a bad memory associated with St Kilda. No, that's right. You have created no trauma for for anyone. You know. Well, well, you remember, you know, our mate Dan Austin, who's uh, also a Bomber supporter. I remember. Uh, one preseason, there was a, a practice match the, between the Bombers and St Kilda at Moorabbin, like a, a warm-up game. 
And I said, do you want to come to watch the game with me? He's like, yeah, sure. And as we were stepping off the train and walking towards Moorabbin, he turned to me like quite brightly and was like, you know what? I have absolutely no fear of walking into Moorabbin. Like it wouldn't be the same if it was going to the Witten Oval or, or Victoria Park, but I'm actually quite happy to be here. And I'm like, that oh. is the most insulting thing you could ever <laughs> it say is. to me. Oh, wow. It's like, it's, like, it's like going back to the jam factory and being like, I used to have heaps of fun here as a kid. That's great. Love it. <laughs> I used to come and meet. I used to come and came here and saw Sander and told him what I wanted for Christmas. I loved it here. That's great. Um, so you, you know, you grew up in an you grew up in an era, and you were privileged to at least spend sort of half your footballing life. Um, you know, uh, having your club guided by one of the most legendary figures in the mm. AFL in, in Kevin Sheedy. I mean, do you reflect now on that period, particularly as, you know, you haven't been able to replicate that success and just appreciate what a giant of the game Kevin Sheedy was? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, and getting back to the point that I, the thing I was saying before about how I felt like Essendon were professional before other people. I think Kevin Sheedy saw the big picture before other people. Yes, I think he saw 100%. the big picture before the AFL was the AFL. I think he saw the big picture. And to have that as really the heart and soul of your club for 20 years, I think 20 years he coached for, 20 straight years. Mm. And and through ups and downs, I, what I will say is I think, I feel like you would struggle. I think you would struggle to find another coach in AFL history. I could be wrong. But he took three generations to premierships. Like 84, 85, and that was like a generation of winning. 93, like an unexpected young, like a young team. The baby bombers. And then was able to absolutely dominate again in 2000. Should have won in 2001. Like it would like really should have won again in 2001. And should have won in 99. You know, the preliminary final against Carlton was a disgrace. But there, there should have been three there. But either way, how many coaches over... It's that span of time, rebuild three generations of, of the team and take them to win. That's an incredible experience. And that contribution is huge. I think all of football owes him a debt for the way that he saw the game as big. The way he went to Greater Western Sydney, when he, I mean, he's pretty cooked as a coach at that point. But if mm, you're going to send point. anywhere to, con- to convince them that they should give footy a go... Yeah, he was. There was no one better because he just loved footy so much. He would be a duffer for anyone if it meant that people were loving footy. You know. Yeah, I mean, if you think back to the early '90s when Sydney were floundering, and the AFL basically just dragged out Ron Barassi and said, "Please, can you just go up there and just sprinkle a bit of your Barass dust on Sydney?" And it worked yeah. because those guys, they are like they are the Fabergé eggs of the AFL. And I don't even know if we will see legendary coaches like that anymore. I think that the game you know, is changing the other example much. of that, that The other example of that that I think is worth bringing up is um, Blight going to Adelaide mm, did, did yeah. the same thing. He was such a respected figure as well. And he mm. t- made them successful. Like, like he was a very senior guy by then. I was a massive yeah. fan of, you know... Um, yeah, I'm only, I'm only smiling because you know after that Malcolm Blight then came to St Kilda and we managed to destroy his career, his, his reputation. Yeah, the problem was you weren't a new club. Um, yeah. it's, no, he... pro- I think the problem was he was happily, happily retired by then. He was living on the Gold Coast, 
playing yeah. golf and we paid him a million dollars and said, mate, you can just bloody phone into training and then wondered why it didn't work out. Yeah, that sounds like such a good strategy. But yeah. I think, you know, it's funny, that seems to coincide with the period where it felt to me like the best players at St Kilda were at Transformers nightclub a little too often around the corner from <laughs> around the corner from the ground. Nah, mate, it wasn't Transformers. It was Flaming Moe's in Bentley. Oh, Flaming Moe's, yeah. yeah. Oh, that yeah. Flaming Moe's was a Johnny Come Lately to the equation, but yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, players shouldn't own bars while they're playing. No, Just not a good idea. Not. It's such a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> so you're you're kind of spoiled, you know, for your your uh, footy journey. Is there it was there one era that you you uh, uh, pick over the other? Like was the '80s or the '90s era? What was your favourite? I mean, I guess the '90s are a bit older. You could probably appreciate it a bit more. Well, um, I think 2000 was. So I went to every game in '99 and 2000 and 2001. Like I went to every not every interstate game, but about half of them. And mm -hmm. so for me, it was, I was old enough and had a job. I was at uni, but I had a job and I was old enough that I could get a cheap flight to go and watch them play interstate. And so that was, that was cool. Like that would, that, you know, I, I, I think that was, it's either that or 85 were my, like, you know, the years where I was a hundred percent invested. It's all I thought about for the season. Mm -hmm. um, although that's, you know. And now that I say that, 93 would be my favourite game I've ever been to. You know, like the what – because they weren't certainties. You know, like they were a young team, they were absolute upstarts, and it was a surprise that they won. That would probably yeah. be my favourite game. So anyway, that's not an answer to your question in any way whatsoever. <laughs> they're yeah, all great. I mean, they're, all, they're all like your children. Yeah, but I can, I can wax a bit lyrical on – like 85 for me, there was something special – about that bygone era that Billy Duckworth was a truck driver, Paul Vanderhaar dug pools during the week. You know, there was a sense that some of them were definitely having a cigarette at halftime. Mm. You know, there, there was that era of football and there was something, you know, it, that's, that's where the footballer, and it wasn't just Essendon, but that, that was the era, era when still the footballer was the working class hero. You know, the the, mm. the 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 rocky narrative of the guy from the neighbourhood that pulls his boots on on the weekend and wins a match. And, it, you know, um, I just watched a Mark Wahlberg NFL oh, the, Philadelphia. Is, it, oh, is that the garbage? Invincible or something. Is that the garbage? Yeah, that the garbage player, who, uh, the garbage man who becomes a, a NFL player or something? Yeah, no, he's not a guy. He's a barman. Oh, right. You know, like, and he's what? Anyway. It's look. It's I that. like NFL, and it's it's good because I like I like NFL movies. I think NFL, I think, is the best sport for movies. It's it's yeah. it's very like it, it's really good. Um, oh, baseball's also good. But, yeah, uh, that is such a fucking digression. Um, Has there been an Air, Air Bud uh, NFL movie? Because I'll only watch it if it involves a golden retriever. Do you know what I think? There, I don't know if there is one where a golden retriever ends up being a like a wide receiver or running back for. <laughs> The New York Giants, but God, it, it's got to be possible. I mean, and now that you say it, I think I'm the man to make it. Um, but, <laughs> um, but, um, but there are. Oh man, it's because it's funny. I've recently what happened because I got disillusioned by AFL is I got quite into NFL and mm -hmm. and American football, like college football and American football. So that's become you know. I, I now watch as much of that as I do of AFL, which is interesting. You know, um, just getting back to uh, to Kevin Sheedy and coaches generally at Essendon. Yeah. 
if you and I and and you know when I talked about bad decisions leading to like the the funk that Essendon is in at the moment. Mm-hmm. So, I think there is one bad decision that has cost the club the most over the last ten years, and it is the moment where there were two. Um, to replace Sheedy, there were two guys going for the job of coaching Essendon. Now, do you know who they were? Uh, well, one would be Matthew Knights. Yes. And do you know he... So Matthew Knights, they both... They made the final two, these coaches. Yeah. And they made their pitches to the board yeah. on the same day, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. Who do you think the other was? Well, I think for the way you're setting up the story, the other one would be Alistair Clarkson. No. No. Essendon grand final player. Half back line. Oh, uh, Bomber Thompson. No. No. <laughs> okay, Mark Harvey. Hardwick. Oh, really? So on the same day, Matthew Knights of Richmond and Hardwick of Essendon go for the job of coach. They both make a PowerPoint yeah. presentation. And by the way, this is just what I've been told. Fact check this all you want, but this is the story that I've been told. They both make a PowerPoint presentation. On the day... Hardwick's laptop gets a virus. He has to borrow someone else's laptop and he's, he doesn't really know what he's doing. He loads his PowerPoint presentation. It doesn't work. He has to give up on it and do it verbally. So on the day, the board yeah. saw Knights have a working PowerPoint presentation and do it right and Hardwick not be able to operate a doing fucking so- laptop. And they went with Knights. I would love to see Hardwick improvising with sock puppets or something <laughs> like that. He brings out like... Salt and pepper shakers, puts it on the boardroom table. So we're going to put the forwards up here and the backs down here. Can I just borrow you a glass of water? Okay. And do you know what really would piss me off is I know that um, Hardwick still would have done a great presentation because he will accept the situation and make the best of it no matter what. Like he's a like, Mm -hmm. we don't have time to bemoan shit guy. He's a get it done guy. Like, And it's just incredible to me that like culturally he was a perfect fit for the club. He was always on the field the most serious guy. Like he was just getting the job done the whole time. No one coaches better than half backmen for some reason. Halfbacks know how to coach. Like right? you know, they always just come out such great coaches. And so as and you would say currently, pound for pound, I think the best coach in the AFL. Like if you could pick anyone to mm-hmm. coach your team right now, I think it would be him. You know. Mm-hmm. And Essendon could have had it. And on that, you know, like that little sliding doors moment. They went with Knights, and that was the first time for a number of years we had the wrong coach. And that's where it all started yeah. to go downhill. I felt sorry for Matthew Knights, though, because I felt like there was a little bit of that kind of snooty uh, country club attitude towards Matthew Knights not being an Essendon person. Like, I felt like, I mean, you've gone, he has to follow one of the most legendary coaches of, of all time, you know, like, that's like your MC or your warm up guy. <laughs> Being like the most legendary comedian, and you know, and then you've got to come out and it's like, oh, oh it's it's, hang it's on. Ashton I mean, Kutcher replacing Charlie Sheen. You know, impossible job. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I, yeah, I just sort of felt like my read of that was that I mean, look, Matthew Knights obviously didn't deliver when he should have, but I also felt like the same impatience that you're seeing with Essendon supporters now was being shown back then. Like it was kind of like, you know, your, your favorite uncle. Uh, you're missing you're and- missing the essential detail and you don't see this detail. It's staring you in the face and you're missing it because you don't know the experience of winning a premiership. Okay. And you don't know the experience of winning a premiership, so you can't see it. 
we were always going to be suspicious of a player who hadn't won a grand final. And I actually, I actually think if you were an ex-player becoming a coach, I would always be inclined to listen to a guy who's won some grand finals. You know, like I, like, and I, know, I don't know statistically if that bears out and is true, but, there, but you know something about what it takes to win. Well, I think it's a balance of what you were saying before, why good halfbacks make great coaches. Because I think there is an element where someone like a Michael Voss, you know, uh, or, or a Tim Watson, you know, when Tim Watson went into coaching, because they were so mm. naturally gifted and they have a hard time understanding, well, why can't you just stand on that guy's shoulders and take a grab and then turn around and then <laughs> yeah. wrench it over your shoulder yeah, and snap exactly. it through the post? But I think if you have a balance of, I, I think the best kind of, like, this is why I think Lethal was such a, an amazing coach, because Lethal got every single ounce of talent out of that little short, stocky plumber's Super Mario yeah. body, you know? Like, he was not a natural-looking athlete, but he had determined... He was skillful and he was tough, but he had the ability to apply himself. And I think that is something. Work, I think, you can train into a, into a group of players. I think... And I think that is it. And, and I wonder if enough clubs, when they're choosing their coaches, look at that psychological profile in the same way. Yeah. Because I, 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 I do think... I mean, we have experienced this in our lives. Like, you remember this from school. The captain of the football team got treated differently at the school to everyone else. Shane Warne, for his entire life, was treated differently to everyone else. And he may have been great at winning because he was naturally good, but I don't think he's necessarily got grit. Mm. Like, I don't think he necessarily knows what to do when things are hard because they've never been hard enough. And the, the, the truth of the matter is, no matter how good your list is, if you're going to win a grand final, you, there are going to be times where it's hard mm. and you have to know how to win. You know, the, the term finding a way to win is kind of the, one of the most universal things in, in football, in, in all forms of football. But like the, the fact is when nothing's going for you, have you got what it takes to win? Lee Matthews always had it. Hardwick always had it. You mean, know, and, it, um, and it almost comes back Longmire to Longmire had it. It comes back to James Hurd, really, in a way, because he wasn't a high draft pick. You know, he didn't on the surface appear to be like, you know, your star player. But then through, you know, application, determination, a will to win, and obviously like the skills and that came later. But he probably was perfectly equipped to become a coach. Football brain. Yeah. And yeah, he wasn't out of the box a champion. He had to make himself that. Mm. It's funny that when he... He had a run of injuries as a player, which went for ages. And it's one of the things that, like, he could have played 350 games and had the greatest stats of all players ever, but he was out injured for a lot of the time and not just having his head caved in. He had, like, these ankle and calf problems. And I remember how he was coming back and he overtrained. Like, it was like he didn't tell the club that he was doing extra running because he was so obsessed with working hard and coming back that he re-injured himself because he was working so hard to come back. And, and um, it's that thing that you say, like that mentality of just doing more than everyone else to get there, you know? And, and I think, I think that's true, I, you know? And so this is, a, I mean, this is being quite a digression, but I think that's what podcasts are. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, 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 I think- feel seen. Yeah, I, and you know, I'm not sure how Essendon's going to go now, like this season. I, I think there is potential. I think there is always potential. But what there isn't is anyone at the club who n still knows what it's like 
to be successful. And I think that that is the challenge because once you don't have that um, heritage of winning in the club, that's hard to make from scratch. Well, that's interesting you should say that because I think that's where, you know, uh, we were all tricked or fooled was with, you know, after the kind of sanctions and the players had that year off and then it seemed to be like Adrian Dodoro seemed to be a friggin' genius, like the players he was bringing in and he just seemed to, he was drove such a hard bargain and if you looked at Essendon's list three years ago, you know, you were like, mm. oh, these guys are going to be challenging for the top four real soon because there was just talent across the board. But something... And also, everyone everyone after they win the first two games would start, would say they're final four. They're fi-, you know, mm. like they'd play two good games and everyone would say, yep, exactly what we thought. These guys will be there at the end of the year. Um, but you got to play a season. And, and I just think we had, you know, like we had assistant coaches giving different, giving players different advice to the coach, mm. you know, like, and not feeding information back to the top. Like to just, we, we had bad communication, bad coaching, bad structures and, and no amount of a good list is going to overcome that. What was your opinion you know, on, it, um, on, on John Walsfold? Like, do you think that maybe he was a caretaker who was left there too long? Or do you think he just, he never got given the support he needed? I think, um, I think I think you have to make him responsible for what he achieved when he was there. And I think he didn't do the job. But part of that, I think, was the problem with, as I say, internal problems with assistant coaches and the way they had decision-making structures set up. But that's the fault of the coach at the end of the day. Like, you, you know, that's why being an AFL, or being a coach of a football team is a pretty shit job but everyone thinks you're a genius when you win you know you mm. um i i think he has to be responsible for himself i i i just don't think well you would have to say based on the results he wasn't the right coach to take them to a place to win yeah you know there was at no point like throughout his time Essendon barely put together Four consistent quarters of good football, let alone a season of good football. You know, like I, I struggle to think of a game where they performed in every quarter of the game over that time. And you know, someone could prove me wrong, but my experience was always there'd be a quarter where they'd shit the bed, and that'd be it. Mm. And, and you know, they they would it'd either be the first quarter, and they could never come back, no matter how good they played, or they'd be dominating out of the first quarter, and then the third quarter would look like they'd forgotten to come back back out onto the ground. And you can't win with that. And and that's a that's a failure of everyone, but it's like you know, that to me is the enduring memory of his tenure. Mm. Be it, whether that's fair or not. You know. I follow you on on Twitter, um as everyone should, Charlie. You are, you are very entertaining on online. <laughs> but I saw that you, you <laughs> Jesus. I retweet a lot of just um Right on shit. I think that's all I mainly do on Twitter. I retweet, retweet. a lot, but anyway. Um, I saw that you were particularly um, upset with uh, Saad leaving your club at the end of last year. Does that hurt more than Danaher? Oh, absolutely. Like, absolutely hurts more than Danaher. I mean, I I have an emotion, like a, a nostalgic affection for a Danaher at the club. You know, I I watched all of the Danahers play for Essendon. Um, and so I, I, you know, that... I had some affection for that story, but realistically, he was 
a very expensive injury list player. <laughs> you know, for like he didn't he didn't play a lot of games. Mm. But more importantly for me, Saad Saad was exciting. And Saad made a difference. And and there'd be situations where Saad would turn nothing into something. And there were situations where and it's funny, I, what I love about Saad is in a game, you know he's going to take on a tackler and try and outrun them probably six to eight times in a game. And he'll get tackled definitely once, probably twice. But six times he will break that tackle and run and deliver it to the forward line. And it's exciting football. And it's like he backs himself, he backs himself so much on the field. Mm. And he plays a type of football that's exciting, that, that has an impact. And as a fan, you want that, that going on. Absolutely one of my favourite players, you know, to play for Essendon, definitely over the last 10 years. And I, just a real, you know, I, to me, that's a failure of club management that he wanted to go somewhere else. Well, I think what it, it indicates is like, he strikes me as a guy who is a professional footballer first and foremost. He wants success that's yep. what he's looking for that's why he came to the bombers in the first place you looked like you're on the way up you had a that's good right. list and then after three years under Worsfold, he was like this is not what i was promised this was not what i came here for on to the next one whereas joe danaher it seemed to be more of a look you know i don't want to uh, 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 make a uh, cast aspersions but it, it felt like he lost his enjoyment of football i mean he seemed to be a dude who genuinely loved being out there he loved kicking a goal well he loved kicking a goal and eight points in a game, but he had a genuine enthusiasm. Yeah. But I think that that you know that Melbourne fishbowl and then all the attention that was on Essendon at the time, you could see that he was just. I don't think he. I, I think that the Danaher name became you know a burden to him rather than you know something that he that he embraced. And then that moves trying to get to Sydney a couple of years ago, talking to Tom Harley, you just got the sense that. You know, you've got a professional footballer who wants his way out because he doesn't like what he sees. Then you've got a guy who's playing more in heart and he wants his way out of there as well. I mean, if you were John Worsfold or if you were the board, I guess, you'd look at what's going on at the coaching level and go, we're doing something wrong here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're, they're both very different approaches to football that those guys have. But you have a feeling that if you had the right organisation, they would enjoy being a part of it and they would, you know, they'd, they'd stick with it. Um, I, you know, it's funny. I've always felt that once a player indicates they want to go, it's over. Like I actually, I just think, I just think I don't care how professional sports gets. If a player decides that they want out of a club and they want to be somewhere else, you got to cut them loose, spend the money on someone mm. else. Like you know, it it, it I don't, It's just an untenable situation. When Essendon fought to keep him at the club, I was like, "What are you doing? Yeah. Like, what, what? What? He's not going to dig deep because he doesn't believe in the mission, you know." And I'm not. I'm not saying that as a, a to disparage him, but it's just like when someone decides they don't want to be there. If if any employee in any company doesn't want to be there, they're not going to do their job well. I mean, to me, it struck me as more of a point of pride from. Dorio, like he is the guy who drives a hard bargain. You know, they weren't happy with what the Swans were offering. They felt like, you know, he was, you know, two first round draft picks at a minimum. Like it, 
it, it seemed to get very, very murky. But I agree with you. Like when a play, especially when a player's well, in- that's but that's but that's it. Sorry, that then speaks to the failure of management. That winning a deal mm. is more important than winning a game of football. I'm sorry, it's not. Like winning winning matches is what counts. I fucked them on a deal. Does not win a grand final, and no one at the end of the season, when they hold aloft the Premiership Cup, says, "Man, we fucked Sydney on that deal two years ago." <laughs> like that's just not. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that might be how he operates, but like, you want people that want to win matches, not deals. Yeah, I mean, there you go. It's, it's... cop that. <laughs> I don't. I don't really. I don't really know what I'm talking about, but it felt good. I was in full flight. <laughs> I th- it's it's weird. Like I also wonder, you know, how does the player front up to the first season? You know, the first uh, session of preseason training. Like McRae at the Bulldogs last year, pretty much did what Danaher did a couple of years ago, where he said, "I don't like, you know, the culture of the club. I don't think they're yeah. working hard enough. I think there's people here who, you know, assume success is going to come. I want to go somewhere that's more aligned with my values." And the club fought tooth and nail to keep him because he is a good footballer. But I, I mean. Is that one of those honesty sessions that you hear about at a football club where the leadership group have to like then prove? I mean, have, it seems to me galling yeah. that Marcus Bontempelli has to then like prove himself to Jackson McRae. <laughs> that doesn't make any yeah. sense to me. No, that's that's exactly right. But how do you a successful team? Everyone will put themselves on the line for everyone else. Everyone has everyone else's back. Ahead of, almost ahead of their own well-being because they know that other people are there and have, have you know, you don't have to worry about you. If you've got everyone else's back, they'll have yours and, and that's, so let's go do it. Mm. If you know there's someone there that's just visiting, yeah, you know, like is a tourist to the experience of, of committing to the team, you can't, you just can't build that, you know, and that's once again, those bad decisions that add up to not winning, mm. you know, like, you you need it's boring but you need everything to go to be right but the way you, everything goes right is you do it by the book you don't make um silly compromises like that yeah along the way you need you need a team list that's 100% committed and that's you know that's at the end of the day um is a great cliche used by coaches but i <laughs> no at the end of the day um you, the only thing that works is players actually caring about the team winning more than themselves. That's it. That's the that's the only that's the only way you fucking get there. And you will have the superstars. You will absolutely have the superstars. But you watch Dusty Martin, you get the feeling he just fucking gives a shit about Richmond winning football games. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like like mm. like you get a feeling that's that's why he gets out of bed in the morning. That's why he leaves his car under the MCG for months. It's because he just wants Richmond to win. Like, that's it. Like, he, you know, he is just 100% that's what he cares about. And, and you know, I, feel, I'm, I, I don't know him. I don't know that much about him. But you get the sense that what he gives a fuck about is Richmond yeah. winning. Football, uh, football and getting tattoos seem to be his two, num- two number one things. <laughs> You got to have you got to have a hobby on your down for your downtime, you know. Like well, when when <laughs> Waleed uh, was on our grand final show last year, he told a story about Dustin Martin that I think is really telling. Where, you know, a few years ago uh, when Dusty was kind of in the wilderness a bit, and uh, GWS came a knocking, and so he went up there with his management team and did a tour of the facilities, and then when they sat down and, and sort of just had a chat with him, they said, you know, like who are your 
best mates and he was like well you know well trent cochin and, and jack revolt and they're like uh you know who are your greatest mentors he's like damien hardwick and after a while they're like you don't want to come here <laughs> you may not realize it but you like where you are so we're going to do you a favor and we're going to say stay with richmond it's yeah it's yeah so um so i think i was definitely right in my so you know i didn't hear that podcast yeah. but i was definitely right on my profiling of dusty yeah, Martin. 100%. But, you know and that's like you know like back to that 93 Bombers side, mm. Tim Watson came back to play so that there would be senior leadership. Yeah. You know, that's people that cared about the club winning. Mm. You know, um, Bomber Thompson wasn't exactly young at that point, but was committed. You know, like, like there was that absolute commitment to the team winning that makes the difference. You know, and it, it's the, you know... You have to draft well. You have to trade well. That's part of the game now. But it actually it shows that no matter how well you trade and draft, that's not what wins. Yeah. No, normally, uh, I- you know, no one's ever, no one's ever said this before. But it just occurred to me that a a, a team of champions <laughs> will not always beat a champion team. You can write that down. That one that one's just for it's an exclusive for two guys. One there cup. is no I in team. But there is a team in team sport, and we are talking about sport. I think that's the metaphor. I'm, I'm not quite sure. I might have got a bit <laughs> yeah, lost. That's it. That's that. it. Definitely. Yeah. Um, now, normally on, on, on these episodes, <laughs> I, I ask uh, people about what is the lowest point you know you've been at with your club. I think we've covered that extensively. Um, what is yeah, the absolutely. happiest memory? It doesn't have to be one of your grand finals. Is there a single game that you went to or a moment that is your happiest memory to do with the Bombers? No, I I I, I know clear as. Clear as day, I know my happiest memory. And it was it was a 2000 grand final, but it was an exact moment. And it wasn't in the game. It was after the game. And I don't know if you remember this, but when Essendon lost to the Bulldogs during that season, so they won every game except the game yeah. against the Bulldogs. And it was about, there were about 10 matches to go in the season, I think, when they lost to the Bulldogs, or maybe eight matches to go. And afterwards, they said, we don't sing the club song until we win the grand final. So, you know, after they won every game after that, they didn't sing the song in the rooms because the job wasn't done. And I'll never forget, they had just done their lap with the cup. You know, where they, you know, they walk around and I high-fived Mark McCurry down on the boundary and they take the cup around and they do a lap. And then James Hurd grabs the cup and drags the team back to the center circle and puts it down in the middle of the centre circle and they stood around and they sang the club song for the first time in 10 weeks. And that that was my favourite moment ever of Essendon because it was, I mean, you can't beat the sense of narrative about it. It's like if this is, you know, the movie Rudy, that's the that's him playing his 15 seconds at the end of the game. But it's, it's like that's telling a story through action on a football field. And to me, that like there was a sense of... You know, and sure, he had a lot of weeks to think, oh, if we win, we'll, I'll do that. But as a fan, you didn't know that was mm. going to happen. And it was just such an amazing crescendo to an incredible season. If you watch that grand final, I, I don't know if we've talked about this, but the, one, of my, one of my other favourite things is um, they, you know, they play old grand finals on the footy channel. And um, I was like three rows from the front 
for that game. And when Matthew Lloyd kicked a goal in the third quarter, I'm on camera saying number one. And so every every time that is broadcast on Fox Footy, people tweet, is that you on the uh, 2000 grand final coverage? And it's just like every single time it's on and I just get reminded and it's like, oh, what a great day that was. You know, like I get, oh, like I have that little reminder. It's That's very amazing. funny. Um, I'm also sporting a, I'm, I'm sporting a terrible goatee that you would have known from our days yeah, right. living together. Um, it was a, a, a yeah, a I did Brent not look great. But, uh, goatee. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which I had no idea was so Brentish at the time. God, no one told me. At least I didn't have a soul patch. <laughs> Shannon Noll. Listening to, okay. um, <laughs> Shannon you know, Noll. Shannon, to- no, who were they? Who were they? Crazy oh, Town. Wow. At least I wasn't like, I have, a, I have a soul patch cranking Crazy Town. <laughs> come, my lady. Come, come, my lady. Oh, Jesus. I'm right back there. Um, but yeah, that, that would be my favorite now, moment. You know, you, you sort of spoke about the way you uh, withdrew your membership in, in those couple of years after the peptide scandal. Do you think if for some reason, you know, um, the Essendon just ceased to exist. There was no uh, men's team. There was no women's team. They just were a non-entity. Do you think that you would continue to follow football? It'd be harder. Like it, it, it's, you know, I have great admiration for a, actually someone you should talk to um, is Jared McCulloch, who I'm sh- I'm sure you would have. Yeah, I see I see him at uh, our local Catholic church about once a year. <laughs> my last time yeah. I saw Jared McCulloch actually was when I was taking my mother. To uh, Christmas Mass, and uh, we had a chat afterwards, and I was like, oh, "I didn't know you lived in the area." And he's like, "No, no, I drove out here because this priest he does the best sermons." <laughs> yeah, that is Jerry. Jerry is um. So for those that don't know, Jerry, I think is well, he's definitely one of the best comedy writers in Australian TV, and he has written for everything. Like I first met him, he was writing for Full Frontal, um which at the time was kind of the only TV writing gig going for, for comedy writers. But he wrote for, he was the head writer for Rove. He was the head writer for the weekly for the first, um, like five seasons of the weekly. He's the head writer now for hard quiz. He is like so experienced. He, he was a writer for the project. Like he's like as experienced at writing for TV as anyone. So the reason I brought him up was he was a passionate Fitzroy supporter. And he's the only person I know who has had that experience of their club disappearing overnight. And yes, they merged. Technically, they merged with the Bears. And yes, he wears a a Brisbane Lions jumper and supports the Lions. But I know that one of the greatest, for one of the greatest footy fans that ever lived, something died when his club did. And it's actually one of the things that I... um, it's one of the things I really like about AFL when you compare it to um, NFL is that there can be a city with a team and then overnight that team is now in another city. And, and, and it just, you know, like a billionaire sells them to another city and, they, and that's it, you know, like, and you could have gone for a team your whole life and all of a sudden they're in Cleveland now. And it's just, you know, like it, it um, one thing I like about Essendon, uh, sorry, about the AFL is, that it's still anchored in place, like no matter how professional it is. The fact that you have teams still today that are named yeah. after suburbs, not even yeah. cities, like they're named after suburbs, that is mm. gorgeous. And I like the fact that, you know, you 
you know, you mentioned the Western Bulldogs. It's They don't play there anymore, but I remember going to see them at the Western Oval. And I remember going to see St Kilda play in Moorabbin. And I, you know, I, I remember going to Fitzroy. It's like one of the most beautiful football grounds that has ever existed is the Fitz, Fitzroy football ground. And, you know, there is, there is something so beautiful about the fact that that still exists within football. And I, I hope that never disappears. But that's a, a long and loquacious answer to, the, to your question, which is I don't reckon you could ever be as passionate about footy if your team disappeared. I just don't think it, it could ever be the same. Like, how about you? If, if St Kilda, wait, if St Kilda disappeared. I mean, I oscillate in my thoughts on this because I ask this of every guest and sometimes I think, yeah, of course I would. And then other times I'm like, but why? I've invested so heavily in this, in this team and, and it's more than just like wins and losses and, you know, going to the games. It's, you know, time spent with my father. It's time spent with my family. It's time spent with my friends. I don't know. I think, you know, the Jared McCulloch analogy is probably exactly right. I would have an interest because I love AFL. I think it's one of the best sports in the world. But I think that something inside me would be broken and I would not have the same passion. I would probably pick another team. Like I'd say, you know, I've spent a lot of time in New South Wales, maybe the Swans or GWS, you know, they're, they're sort of closer to me. But I don't think I would follow. I mean, also, I'm closer to death, Charlie, than I am. Than, than I ever was when I started barracking for the Saints. So I don't have a lot of time left. So I think I, w- I would pick a team where I could see some immediate results. I can at least see a flag, but I don't know. I think that I, I don't think I'd turn my back on the game altogether, but uh, I, it would it would definitely be a long period of mourning. Yeah, I don't think you overcome it. It's funny. Um, you you said you mentioned before, and I don't know if this is in now, but you've said to me before that we arbitrarily imbue you know, teams with character, like we identify with them just Mm. out of choice. And it's really funny. Like, you know, the times when you're at the football and you look around and you're surrounded by the supporters of your team and you're like, yeah, we're all together. And you go, I mean, if I met any of you on the street, not wearing an Essendon scarf, I would be horrified, you know? (laughs) And, and that's, that's beautiful. That's one of the beautiful things about, about football in general, but there's actually a psychological thing to it. And it's why I think football is really healthy and important. And it is that we all have within us from thousands of years of evolution in group, out group instincts. So we will fiercely see people within our group as us and people outside our group as them. Now that manifests really badly in things like racism and sexism. Okay, like that's just um, that's that's a bad manifestation. It takes work to overcome those core tribal instincts that lead to horrific outcomes like that. But football is a really healthy version of that. Like you go, yeah, we're on a team and we hate those guys and we want to beat them because they're not us. Yet we walk outside and we all catch the train, the same train home and we're not stabbing each other with spears. Do you know what I mean? Like there is something that it's a healthy, that's a healthy outlet of in-group, out-group mentality. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about football. I think that's a great point to end the interview. Charlie, thank you so much for coming on to talk about the Bombers. All the best for 2021. See you later. Uh, Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. I have not talked about Essendon this long well, since the peptide scandal. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, hopefully it was a bit more of a positive conversation. (laughs)
Thanks, Charlie. <laughs> Definitely was. Hey, thanks. We are two guys, one car.